Welcome to Building and Protecting Your Business Worth podcast. This podcast is about sharing strategies and ideas to help business owners build, protect, and transition their businesses for the future while creating more balance in their life. Your host is Thomas J. Perrone, CLU, CIC, and president of the New England Consulting Group of Guilford Incorporated, consulting business owners for over 50 years. Welcome to Building and Protecting Your Business Worth. Hi, I'm Tom Perrone, and I'm your host. And this podcast is all about learning strategies to build your business, to create greater profit, but to create also an abundance of leisure time so you can enjoy what you're building. Today, we have a wonderful guest, and I would like to introduce to you Mr. Don Baris. Welcome to Building and Protecting Your Business Worth podcast. How are you, Don? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for participating today. I was really excited about this call because I've watched you on TV. I've known you for 54 years, and I've seen you become very successful, and people in the area know who you are. And you're going to be a very good person to talk with for those people who are listening and kind of learning what are the things that Don Baris did to make him stand out in his field. So I do have some questions, but before we get into that, let me tell the audience a little bit about you, Don. Um, okay. You know, Don's the owner of Don Baris Fine Art and Antiques, and most people in this area have heard of him, know of him. He's been on TV. Um, he's been doing this for about 30 years, buying, selling, appraising fine art, antiques, jewelry, coins, gold, and silver, single items, or the entire state. And uh, if you met Don, uh, it, it's so easy to work with Don that um, it's, it's no wonder why he's so well-known and has such a successful business. But Don, I want to share with you and the audience some of the things that really made you stand out. Um, so I have a couple questions, and I thought maybe we'd share this with the audience today, okay? Sounds great. All right. Um, the first thing is, how did you get in this profession? Because you were an executive with one of the bigger companies, and all of a sudden I see you on T. So tell us how this all happened. You know, a lot of people ask me that. They say, how did you go from wearing a suit and tie, and all of a sudden you're buying people's art and antiques and doing their estates? If funny things happen, um, I was working for a small division of Union Carbide selling cryogenic applications to medical schools and pharmaceutical companies, uh, such as Yale Medical School, uh, uh, Bristol-Myers, and so on and so forth. It was a wonderful job. I loved it more than anything, dealing with people researching cancer, and I was basically selling liquid nitrogen and cryogenic equipment. And it was a day-to-day sales career that that I really did enjoy a lot. And uh, a funny thing happened. My dad got an illness, Alzheimer's disease that everyone knows about. It was over 40 years ago. I was maybe 27 years old. And it was uh, financially devastating for our family. And I felt that I needed to do something else. And right at the same time, a friend of mine asked me to join him in an antique store in New Haven. And I said, well, that's great, except I don't know anything about furniture, antiques, or what it's all about. He said, that's okay. I'll teach you. So I opened up a little a store with him, and we refinished furniture in 1977 and sold to uh, to the people in the neighborhood and Yale students and people that came in the store. And I found it very interesting, and very quickly I realized that there was more to it 
than just furniture. There was glass and there was jewelry and there were paintings and there were categories. There were a hundred different categories of things that people would be interested in. So I decided at that point that I would make it a hobby and continue to do it to relieve the stress from my regular sales job. And I did that. So then I discovered the American art business, which is part of the antique business because, again, there's many categories. And I actually went to New York City while everybody else was watching football on Sunday afternoon. I was walking the streets of New York City and going in to every gallery and asking questions with no money in my pocket and looking at paintings I couldn't afford and meeting antique dealers. And how else do you learn but from the people who have done it forever? And I found in New York, what, what could be a better place than New York to learn because they're willing to teach you there. So that's really a long-winded answer to your question. Uh, it happened naturally, and I became so passionate about American paintings that I just studied and studied and studied, went to shows every weekend. I sort of dropped out. All my friends used to say, what has happened to you? Where are you going? Well, then, you know, proceed further to what happens to people in corporate America. They become uh, uh, successful or they don't. I had a really good sales job, a lot of the great uh, customers. And, and, and what happened way back then? Well, corporate America changed. And I could see uh, as uh, I had a new boss come in from Chicago that I was making money and commissions and it was going to be over. And at just about that time, I basically felt that I love art and antique so much that I think what I'm going to do is make a decision to quit my job. And I didn't really have any extra money, but I did it. So I left corporate America and started my art and antique business full-time, not without the help of a few mentors who said, you can do it, you can do it. And I would say, who's, who's going to pay my bills? How am I going to do this? And they said, you'll do it. If you love it, you'll do it. The money will come. So that's, that's the long-winded answer to that question. And, and you know what? I relate to that because we've had conversations in my new book, um, Unlocking Your Business DNA, uh, we both have the same parallel story of a father dying and creating a passion for one another. So I get that. And, you know, Don, you've been very successful uh, around the area. And, um, you know, I, the next question I was going to ask you is, why are, why are you so highly successful uh, in the area where, um, you know, what was the, the purpose of it? But by that explanation, you really put a lot of time where people are eating popcorn and watching football. You're freezing in New York City with no money to learn your education. Well, I did. I did. And what I realized very, very quickly that all the people that were in the art and antique business knew a lot more than me. They were either second generation or third generation. And I was very intimidated by that. So I basically would go to auctions and watch and see who the competition was, see what they did, what their, and it's a terrible thing to say, what their flaws were, what their strengths were, know what your competition is doing. And I sat there very quietly and watched and watched and watched, and people would say to me, hey, you'd never buy anything. How come, what are you coming to these auctions for? Why? No, I'm learning the business. I'm learning the business. So I think that's what we have to do. We have to, number one, find out uh, when we decide to start a business, what is it that we have to do best? And that's to find out what our customer wants. Never think, you know, the old uh, 101, never think about yourself, think about your customer. I never once thought about making a dime. When I went into a house to buy an estate, I gave 150% regardless of whether they decided to go somewhere else. I just did it. I, I know it sounds corny, but uh, that's what I did. And it's 
Sometimes you get the deal. You know, if you put 10 things out there and one or two come through, you can make a living at it. If five of them come through, you'll make a trillion dollars. And five don't come through. So you, you just do it every day. You don't give up. You take advantage of uh, things when times are bad. For instance, uh, when uh, 2001 happened and they hit the towers, I had my, almost my best year in a very, very tragic year in America because I didn't give up. 2008, the banking industry went sour. I advertised more than ever before and said I'm buying more than ever before and had my best year ever. So I'm really not that smart. I tried different things, and among those successes, I still to this day, after almost really 40 years of doing this full and part-time, I'm still making mistakes that I shouldn't make. Yeah, well. So, But that's, that's a humbling event to have yeah. happen. That's a good you know, uh, well, that's the whole thing. I Anyone I've spoken to who's worked with you has told me how easy it was to work with you. So I want you to share with the listeners who own businesses to talk about, you know, what are the things that you feel are the key things that you did to become successful while these other people are struggling? Because I know you do have a process. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, I, would, I think the most important thing would be to work with other people. I don't think you can succeed in business by trying to do everything yourself. And I can't be guilty of trying to do everything myself and micromanaging myself. But I learned over the years that if there were lots of other people in the business doing different things, I could share things with them. I could sell them things and in some cases let them make more money than I did so I could get money quicker to buy the things that I was good at. For instance, if I had to give an example, I love the American art business. So what I did that nobody else did in this business is that I would buy house load after house load after house load. And I would put them in a warehouse and then send all those antiques to a different auctioneer and sell it wholesale. Sell it cheaper than anybody. And I hate to use the word cheap, but I would sell it uh, cheaper than anybody else and get the money. Well, what did I do with that money? I took that money and I paid my bills and then invested in higher quality paintings. So the, purpose, the, the meaning of what I'm saying here is you can't have it all. You've got to share it with other people and work through other people or I don't think it can succeed. And maybe not everybody would agree with that, but I found that helping other people, being honest with your customers, well, yes, you'll be disappointed. You'll, you'll have deals that will go sour. But in the long run, it'll come through just when you need the money. It will be there for you. There seems to be, uh, with everybody I speak to, there seems to be this um, universe of having faith in your instinct. What you're doing is right, even though it may not be working. And I find that's a trait with successful people. They, they put trust in their instinct. Uh, Absolutely. They can't even explain why they trust themselves, but they do. And it always works out. And uh, so here's my question to you. You know, what were the challenges that you faced that maybe where they were really challenges that you think changed uh, your business, the direction of your business? Oh, yeah, that's a great question, Tom. Um, Changing markets. So if I went back for two seconds to the sales business I was in, in medical sales, it would stay the same for five years, and I could make calls in my laboratories and have the same customers and keep everybody happy. But in this business, in this day and age with the Internet, the challenges are good and bad. You have more competition. You have more people fighting you. 
and uh, the opportunities there are uh, that you're able to deal with more people. You can sell things overseas. You can sell things everywhere. But it is much more difficult now because the amount of people that are in it, and everybody's got a better way to create it than you. So we can't sit back for five years and do the same thing we always did and expect to get the same money or more money and grow. We have to change constantly. And I find that at my particular age a little bit difficult, but I call it keeping up with youth. You really better know what's going on in the marketplace. I actually get up every morning at about 4.30 or 5, and I look at the results of every auction in the United States that's going on the day before. And because of the Internet, we can do that, and it's quiet, and I can see what's selling, what's not selling, what's coming up, what's going down. And without knowing that, it's a huge problem. So I think that now product knowledge and continuing to stay on it on a daily basis, which is frustrating because we want to kick our feet up and uh, take a little time off, and it becomes more difficult to do that because of the competition. You know, you, again, a, a, a characteristic that you're sharing that I hear all the time with all my guests that own business is you never stop learning in your business. You always have to learn more. And, and you do that, obviously, because um, you know your, your craft really, really well. Don, you mentioned to me that you had, um, you had a younger gentleman working for you to help you, and you were delegating some stuff to him as you got older. How, tell me how that's working out. Well, that's, it's interesting. You know, you, people come into your life and business for different reasons, and, and you work with people for a while, and it works out, and then sometimes it outgrows itself and doesn't work out, or you might... Uh, all of a sudden not get along with that person. And I've always believed, like you say, instinct is a good thing. So I, I met this gentleman who was in his 30s. He was a, a, a UConn graduate of agriculture and went into, the, uh, went into the antique business. And I realized very, very quickly that he was 10 times smarter than me. So that's a good thing. And he knew a lot of things uh, because of changing markets that I didn't know and hadn't kept up with. And I uh, actually, uh, we started working together over the past couple of years, and I started to share some of the estates with him and actually not have him work for me, but work with me. And I always think it's very, very important when you're having employees to not say they work for me, they work with me. At least that's, that's how I feel about it. So uh, actually, just briefly in April when the pa- or March, when the pandemic hit, um, zero money was coming in, let's say March or April. I said, okay, here we go again. This is like 2001. This is like 2008. I'm screwed. So I called up my friend Dean and I said, I got an idea. Uh, I know there's nothing going on and everyone's afraid to go out, but let's, let's do an online estate sale and auction business right now. And let's talk about it and make a decision to do it. I think we can make money. You and I are very similar. And he looked at me and he said, yes. And we have now done our first two auctions, and we're doing our, second, our third and fourth auction now. And the first two were very successful, and we're hoping that three and four are successful. And we have plans to uh, uh, hopefully allow it to grow into something even bigger. Uh, not that I need to do that at 71 years old, but he's 33. And so what that does for me is I can teach him things. He can teach me things. We can work together. We don't have to argue. We don't have to compete. We just have to both learn make money together, and laugh a lot. So th- those are good things. It's very, very hard to get someone, number one, you can trust, number one, who thinks your language, and you almost, and I know, Tom, you're going to know what I mean by this, 
I almost don't have to finish the sentence with him, and he knows exactly what I'm thinking about, and he the same way. So we have a good working relationship. Yeah, you know, Thanks, yeah, no, I, I, you had mentioned that to me, and I, uh, again, another characteristic is one of the value drivers of growing a business for the future is the creativity and creating and, st and thinking outside the box. But more important th than that is uh, maybe even the delegation of getting things off your plate so you can focus on the things that you're good at and like to do and have the passion. So I find that a lot, Don. I find a lot of people that own a business want to do it all themselves and they're, they're stuck and they don't have a business. They have a job because nobody wants their business because he's the only one or she's the only one who knows it. But you're handing this the baton off to this guy and he's learning and it's creating, uh, well, it's getting me to my next question because I see you down the, the O all the time. So I'm going to ask you this. <laughs> How do you create so much free time for yourself? Because I'm a big proponent of that. And, you know, from our conversation, and by the way, I have to say it over and over again, getting together with you is one of the best things that happened. We really had a great conversation. And you, I didn't tell you this before, but you made me feel awfully guilty because it seemed like you really figured out how to uh, do the downtime better than I have. And <laughs> my friends will always say, what the heck is wrong with you? You don't take any time off. And I said, I really do. I know that when there's a day that I can get away, I either jump in my kayak or play the piano or just take a big, deep breath and walk up at Sleeping Giant and stop everything. Because if you don't do that, you're just going to clog yourself up and you're going to be frustrated. So um, when things aren't going so well, uh, instead of trying harder to make them work, I sort of stop dead get in the car, jump in Long Island Sound, where, by the way, is where the first time I saw you after 40 years, we went by each other in our kayaks, which I thought was a tremendous thing. I haven't seen you in a long time. So you've got to take a break. And you know yourself that every time you take a break, whether it be going on vacation, uh, taking a walk, or just taking a deep breath, you're going to create something in your mind for your business that's not stressful and going to give you a good idea to do something new but if you don't do that all you're going to do is clog yourself up get frustrated and block out the successes that want to come in the universe wants to work for you you know it does i think at least i've always believed that but the, as soon as i fight it and don't take downtime i'm screwed so thanks for asking that question because i'm not that good at really taking time off as i'm saying that i am to you here but i'm getting better at it it takes time well, I, I see you, and you're always uh, happy and smiling. One, one thing uh, people will know when they run across Don Barisi, he's always smiling. He's, he's an up guy. And, but I got to tell you, I, I, in, that, in my book, um, I do talk about that because, like you just said, that the, the downtime, getting away from what you're doing, is creates the creativity to bring back into your mind those things you thought about maybe two years ago but you haven't allowed it to blossom. And all of a sudden you're walking with your kid or you're taking a walk and all of a sudden, bam, oh, something hits you. And it was a thought you had three years ago and it turned into be a creative idea for your business, for your life, whatever it might be. So downtime, I'm a big proponent of that. And I, it's always good to see you relaxing at the O, you know? Yeah, and it, it, it's something that was always very difficult for me, my dad was a workaholic, and then, uh, you know, he did get sick. People get sick, and I used to think, my God, if I, 
Maybe if he took a little more time off. So none of us have control over any of those things, really. But basically, I found that, uh, uh, you know, walking slow. I call it backpedaling. I, I said, give me the strength. Uh, I think Eisenhower said it. God, give me the strength to swing easy in the game of golf. And I love that saying because really swinging easy is a good thing. It, it is. It is. And um, so, Don, um, it, it, what if you were counseling someone in business who I, I use the word a better business, the, what I call the ideal business life, because right. people, you know, when you have a business, it's your baby, it's your family. And if it's going great, maybe you're having a good life. Maybe not. It all depends how you're, you're, uh, how right. you're at it. but I try to help people understand how to get there and and i see you uh, you're there but can you share with us the two or three things that maybe over the years you've implemented in the business model that you have where it's really helped you uh, feel really good and passionate about what the future for your business well i that's a really good question and i think uh, answering that would be to never really treat my business like a business, treat it like a hobby, even when it is a serious business. And for instance, I'm lucky enough to be in the art business. So when I'm studying artists or studying antiques or studying categories that I don't know, I find that it gives me great, great passion, great euphoria. And I think that leads to some success. So you're not really thinking about your quota. You're not really thinking about, I have to make this money today because I got to pay my insurance bill or I got to do this or I got to do that. You just sort of treat it as if it's a natural thing without the worry of saying, if I don't make this money today, I'm a failure. And boy, I've been guilty of that. I put quotas on myself in the old days that were horrendous. And if I didn't make it, I'd say, I'm not a very smart business person. But I learned to get over that and that you just keep, you just keep going and keep going and keep going, and trial and error is a simple way to put it. Just keep moving, and everything usually works out. And within that, there's going to be a lot of obstacles, a lot of disappointments. My, my boss at Union Carbide used to say to me, people don't mean what they say. They mean what they do. They will disappoint you, and I never forgot that. I think it's a really, really good one. And, and, and so, I, I don't know, I just... Um, I just sometimes feel that I'm really not that great of a business guy. I just sort of act what you said before, instinct, change, constant change. Uh, don't be like everybody else. I remember once in a sales meeting at Union Carbide, there was a man that stood up and took uh, the General Motors account away uh, uh, from the competition. It was a $6 million account, and that was 30 years ago. It was a big deal. And he said to 300 salespeople in the audience, don't be a me to it. Don't be like everybody else. Tailor your own business to your own way like an artist does a painting or whatever. Don't be like every. Don't be a me to it is the way he put it. And I thought that was just a fantastic way to put things. So I've been lucky to run into the right people who have guided me just about the time that I'm going away or going off to the walking down the wrong road or if you can put it that way and then you have to back up and go into the other road. So I don't think there's any particular one formula that works for everybody. I think, again, we have to just keep trying different things. As uh, Walt Hampton, who's a 
coach, a, a business coach uh, in Ireland and from Connecticut, but he's international and he's a friend of mine, says, celebrate your business life because you're doing so many good things, you should celebrate it. And, and, and that's what I, I hear from you. You have so much passion on what you're doing. Um, and, and, you know, if as a business owner, you can get to that and say, you know, I'm going to work today, but I'm not going to work. I'm going to help people. Uh, instead right. of I'm going to my office today because I, I'm uh, I'm running a, an adult daycare. That's a whole different ballgame, right? But you know, we don't hear that from you. Now, did you have mentors down uh, as you started? And, and even now, do you have mentors that you talk yeah. with? I'm so glad you asked me that question. I can relate. Just I can. I had many mentors, but I will relate. I was making a, um, I was making a, I was making a call in Weston, Connecticut, once to buy a painting from a woman in her home, and they were very wealthy people. And her husband was sitting quietly as I walked into the living room to look at the painting, and the husband said to me, "Why are you in a suit buying paintings?" And I said, "Well, no, I have a, I have a full time job." And I was 44 at the time, by the way, 43, 44. I said, I have a full-time job, but I'm really passionate about art. I'm doing art. And he, I didn't know this, he was a retired CEO that was just kind of recovering from a little health problem. And he started yelling at me and he said, oh, no. He said, you are much too passionate. You need to quit that sales job and retire and go in your own business. And he pointed his finger and he said, do it now. And his wife started to yell at him and say, honey, calm down. He said, no, I need to tell this man, do it now. So it was as simple as a 15-minute person who I met one time and never saw again who gave me the courage to do it. But my best mentor was a gentleman who started with nothing and called me every single day at 7 in the morning and 11 at night and talked about business to me. And he hounded me and hounded me and hounded me. And his name is Howard, and he would say, you need to do this. You've got it. You've got it. You can do it. You need to leave that job. You can do it. And I'd be so nervous. But he, something inside of him, saw something in me that maybe was like him. He was so intense about it that I said, Howard, I have to interrupt you. My father just passed away today. He said, never mind that. I have to tell you about this. He was, so those are the kind of people, and there were many more. Sometimes it could be a 95-year-old woman who was in the garment business in New York City, and she points her finger at you and says, you, I can tell you what you need to do next. And, boy, you better listen to people who have been there because if you don't, you're never going to learn anything. And so I think there's a series of mentors I could go on and on and on about it, but those were two that I thought of that were very helpful at a very close time when I was sort of like ready to leave corporate America, and they gave me the push. And I just one day I just said I'm out. Walked into my uh, walked into my uh, sales office and called my sales manager in, and I raised my hands and I said uh, I'm all done, and I'm not mad. I said yeah, give me a year's pay and I'll train my replacement, I'll do it right, I want it in writing, and then I'm going to go on and go in the art antique business. And they thought it was great, so everything worked out great. So lots of lots of mentors. Thanks for asking that question. Without those mentors, without the people, and it could be a 17-year-old person that's really smart that says one thing, or it could be a 90-year-old person that's been there and they see it in you. And I know you know what I mean, and you've been through all these things, so you, you get it. I read your book, and I know you get it. Yeah, I do get it. And um, yes, people walk through your life for different reasons. And 
whenever we're out to dinner, um, I'll always ask questions to the young waiter or waitress. And my wife would say to me, why do you ask so many questions? And I say, because I might say something that might give a direction to this young person that influenced. Boy, that's a great, I'm so happy you said that. I love that sort of thing. Yeah. That is a great way to put it. And that's the right way to think because you, I used to do it to the toll. I would be driving through the toll booths when they took money years ago on the Jersey Turnpike. And, the, and you know, uh, what a job he's taking money on. And I would stop and say, how's everything going today? Uh, hope your job's working out. Hope his life is good. And hand him the money. <laughs> hand him the money. I thought people thought I was nuts to do that. But I think it's the right way to think constantly. Especially. Always give. Yeah, especially today, today's environment. But oh my God, today's uh, yeah. talk about challenges. Today's the, today are challenges beyond the course. Well, you know, Don, you're interesting because um, I, I'm not going to say most people, but many business owners go into their own business because maybe a crisis type of move, meaning they lost their job, right. that something happened. But you actually had a great job. You were doing really well, but your passion overtook that, and you you well, listened. You said it. That's exactly it. And and that's amazing. And I guess the message I want to get to people that are listening is that listen to your inner self. Absolutely. That's the true self. That's the true message. And uh, and if it keeps coming up, the synchronicity is telling you a lot more than you, you maybe be thinking of. So anyways, uh, we don't want you all to go out there and, and quit your job today because uh, you no, like no, Legos no. or something. But so, Don, let's get down to the business because you do have a process. Here's a uh, tell us what the importance and the best way for a family to downsize their estate and to receive a fair price. For okay, that's a good thing because that is what I do every day. So we'll we'll set apart from the people who walk in here and sell me one thing because they have one thing they found in their basement. That's 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 one thing. People sell me things or I buy from dealers or blah, blah, blah. When a family calls me, and this is the thing that happens to me the most frequently, I will get a call and one or two things will happen. It'll, it'll be for one of the children calling me uh, of the mother and father. Maybe somebody's passed away or maybe it's the mother and father. And that's really the most common situation where somebody may be in their 70s or their 80s or even their 90s and they call me up and they say, hey, we're, we're moving out of our house after 50 years. We're not going to take a lot with us. We're moving to smaller quarters. We need to uh, uh, get some ideas on how to do this. We have no idea. And so I make an appointment, and I go there, and I always uh, start out by saying, you know, what do you think you want to do, or what is your goal? And they will tell me. They'll say, my kids are taking this. I need to know as much information about what they're doing. It's more important about what's for sale I don't really care about what's not for sale. So then what I do is I say, we're going to do a walk around just like you would as a real estate agent. And I, because of my experience in the business, so let's take a, 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 an average house of eight rooms, let's say, with an attic and a basement. And I walk through each room, and it only takes me five minutes in each room to know, not necessarily what everything's worth to the penny, but what these people should do. Because it isn't a it isn't a one shot deal anymore where somebody comes in and does everything. It was that way years ago, but today there are different ways to do it. You can sell at auction, you can have an estate sale, you can sell outright, you can do some consignments, you can sell it yourself on eBay on the internet or Facebook Marketplace. There's a dozen ways to do it. I try to guide people and say, look, don't 
research everything yourself because you're going to be wrong. You can do it. You may be right. You may have an idea what things are valued at. Um, but the most important thing is for me to walk around and give you the ideas. And sometimes I'll cut myself out of the picture and say, this is not for me. But I work with seven auctioneers uh, from Massachusetts to New Jersey. And this particular state is for this auctioneer. And I'm going to bring this auctioneer. They're going to explain how they do it. They're going to take everything out and sell it and happy. And you're going to live happily ever after. And then if it's an estate sale, I tell them immediately that this is not something that really 90% of the antique and art dealers can do. It's an estate sale because you have a mixture of old things and new things. So it's never going to work. It's never going to get someone to come in in this day and age and buy everything. So an estate sale can be a very effective way uh, to do it. Uh, you could sell to friends and relatives, although that would be the last thing I would tell people to do. Yeah, I think a lot. A lot of people will, will – I encourage people to do eBay. I'll say to them, look, you can sell these things on eBay yourself, and if you've got the time, and some people will do some things. So the answer to your question is I have to really look at everything and give them my best shot as to what I think they need to do. If they listen to me, it's going to work out right. If they try to do it on their own, they're going to make mistakes. Who doesn't make mistakes trying to do things that they don't know anything about but they think they do? So if, if they are comfortable with what I have to say and how they need to downsize, I set the stage. I don't charge for that because unlike an attorney or in other businesses, this is, I go in without any expectations. And I also don't try to buy one or two things when somebody needs to sell a whole houseload because that's not their goal. I give 150% of what they should be doing who they should be doing it with, whether it be an estate sale, an auction, selling outright to someone like myself or other dealers, consignment. So there's a lot of combinations of things. And most people do listen and will thank me. Uh, oh, my God, they'll walk me to the door and thank me. They said, we had no idea where to start, but you have given us some great information. My husband and I are going to talk about it, and we'll get back to you. And that's all you can really do. So it's important to, to give the information, get them a better understanding. Now, just to back up a second, the thing that has never happened to me in 40 years, but one or two times, is that people hire an independent appraiser to come in and appraise everything. So then if they want me to buy everything, they have an idea by a third party who has told them exactly what their things are worth. And then when I come in and make an offer, if it makes sense that it falls within a range, then they know they're comfortable about it. One of the most difficult obstacles today is everyone thinks things are worth more than they are or less than they are. So you're, it's, not, it, it's the subjective business. There's no formula that this is this much money or that is this much money. It's a combination of things. And I know it's a long-winded answer for this, but that's the most important thing, knowing how to do it in, uh, uh, in stages, by categories. For instance, if somebody has... Uh, just a few antiques and a few household things, but they have a doll collection, and the doll collection is worth 25000 I need to get them the doll person, or I need to get them the lamp person. Right? So, again, working through others, and this way they can effectively get more money. But I don't find that people are willing to spend the money to do appraisals to do that ahead of time. I think I uh, maybe only had one or two people in 40 years that have ever sort of gone out and got an appraised first. I guess people don't want to do that, so they rely I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, uh, because is so what would be some of the different options of downsizing for a family estate? Well, you, there's really basically 
it, auction, estate sales, selling outright yourself by advertising on the internet, consignment shops, that's really, those are, the, those are the ways to do it. And each estate is different. Some are clearly auction situations, and the reason for that is they'll get more money at auction than selling outright. Estate sales can be good because they're going to be able to sell not just the antiques, they're going to be able to sell the, the lawnmowers, they're going to be able to sell the, the household items. Their goal is to get rid of more things. So, so that's, what we, that's what we have to find out. I always encourage people to have family members take things first because this way there won't be any uh, uh, sadness at the end if somebody sold something that they weren't supposed to sell. So I give them all that ammunition and put myself at the bottom of the list, and then if everything works out and they call me back and I do the estate, everything's fine. So, so, um, so I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, as I'm thinking here, one of, the re one of the things that you do that is really important is that you educate them fully uh, and totally. don't worry about giving too much information because I've heard in the no. past, oh, don't give the client all the information, you'll confuse them, but people are brighter than that. So brighter. when you first see them and start working with them and showing them all this, I think you're helping them choose how to handle the aspects of downsizing by educating them. Well, you have to do that. And I think that uh, unfortunately, all businesses are different. This business is different because it's got a stigma with it from the old days is that, you know, antiquities are unfair. They don't pay enough. And I, I used to teach classes at the senior centers and uh, uh, women's clubs, and someone would always raise their hand and say, we sold my grandfather's antiques in Maine, and we only got $5,000. The antique dealer didn't treat us right. And I said, well, how do you know that antique dealer didn't lose money? Did you get it appraised? No, I didn't get it appraised. How do you know? We lose money all the time. People don't know that. And sometimes they don't believe it. When we buy lots of things, it's all about the average. We lose money all the time. We don't lose all the money, but it isn't that way. So people will say we were not treated fairly. And I said, based on what? Did you get it appraised? Did you get information? Did you get? No, it's just sort of this uh, uncomfortable feeling of, oh, my God, it was my family stuff, and maybe I shouldn't have sold it anyway, and they lay it on us. So that's a, that's been an obstacle. So in the old days, it used to be buy low and sell high. And I learned very quickly from a, a great Madison Avenue, a New York dealer who taught me some of the best rules in this business. He said, when you see something great, pay more than it's worth. Pay high and sell fast. We're in a different world today. People are smart. They're educated. And, and, and uh, you, you want to just do it right. So those are important things to know. And a lot of people don't know that. They think, oh, we go in and we buy it for a dollar and sell it for a hundred. Sometimes I buy it for 10,000 and sell it for 10,500. And people, people say, well, how could you stay in business that way? Well, it leads to other things. We do things for different reasons. So it's, a, it's all about the average. And in my business, I think all businesses is probably about an average because people make more profits on some things and less profits on other things and probably do things that they don't make much money on, but they got to do it to stay in business. So these are the things I've learned. I think that all businesses have the same common denominator. The names and the numbers are different, but the formula is very, very similar. And, so, and uh, Is that what you meant by uh, you've used the term buying is more important than selling? Well, the reason... Again, my business is different than a lot. So we'll take the example of the, uh, the auto parts store. So the auto parts store has a run on batteries. They just order more batteries. So in the antique, and only antique and art dealers know this, and it's sort of a corny thing. An economics professor would say we're, we're failures. 
we make our money on the buy, not on the sell. So that sounds like it's totally a ridiculous statement. We can't order, if I have three Tiffany lamps and I sell all three of them, word gets out that I have these great lamps and people want them and I don't have them to sell because I can't order them. So the most important part of our business is buying. And even if you have more inventory in your warehouses than you need, you never stop buying or you're out of business. So it's a corny thing and it's a different rule than a lot of businesses, but you make your money on the buy because when you're buying, you may already know that you have this sold. Uh, when you, obviously, when you sell, you're making profit, and that is important. There's no question about that. But I can't order anything. I have to rely on people calling me, putting combinations of things together to buy, to upgrade, always upgrade, never downgrade, always upgrade. And so basically, it's very, very difficult. I have to go out and on the hunt all the time and find the things I need to find. So that's why it's a little bit different than other businesses. We, we, we can't order our stuff. It's logical once somebody's been told that. Yeah, it's almost the in, inverse of um, normal businesses with inventory. Absolutely. But your inventory is never perishable. It's There's always someone out there that's going to want it. It's just a matter of time. Um, it's a matter of And the other thing we do as dealers, which a lot of people, the public doesn't know, and I know I do it more than probably anybody, is if I have dead stock, I just call a dealer who I want to, I say, this is your lucky day. I've got a 15 foot truckload. I want to sell you. And you know what? Here's the number. And if you're in a good mood, come down with a check because I wish someone were doing this for me today. I need to move this merchandise. And that's really how the business uh, works. It's a lot of dealer to dealer, uh, uh, a lot of wholesaling, losing a little bit of money on things, averaging out. And then sometimes, you know, we get lucky and things bring more than they should they could, they could, you could put it in auction if somebody's willing to pay a lot more. You get lucky, and I've had it happen both ways. I put things in and got hammered, and put things in and did great, and not know why. So it's it's not logical to a lot of businesses, but I think that in 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 all businesses we find that kind of a thing that there are certain things that we do better with, there are certain things that we make more money on, there are certain things we make less money on. One of the uh, today everything's yeah. changed. It is different and it is changing. And that's the one thing about good business people. They, again, their instincts come into play. They learn what they need to learn and they don't uh, mess with the minutia of the business. They have other people doing it. And and you, and we're, we're running out of time, Don, but we have a couple of minutes and I want to kind of sum up. But before I do that, Don, would you, uh, people certainly may want to contact you to talk to you about their situation they may want yeah. to call you about a business strategy. They may want to call you about what you do. Can you kindly give us a contact or whatever you would like to give us so that they can contact you? Well, they can contact me at, at donbarisfineart.com uh, or at 203-248-2700. And also, one of the things I've done from my teaching my classes for years is I have an outline, an outline, a three or four page outline that I used to use to teach with on how to downsize an estate. And if somebody needed a copy of that, I can certainly mail it out. And it just is, it's just a guide to go by uh, when you're thinking about different ways to, to downsize. That's a nice, uh, that's a great tool to get. So if you want to get that information, email Don, ask him to send you a copy. I'm sure he can either hard copy it or scan it to you uh, to start with. And then you can follow up and talk with Don about that. But we, Don, we know here in the local area what a great reputation you have. 
Um, Don, I, I want to summarize uh, for the listeners that uh, what we really learned from Don today is he said he said a couple of important things. He said, use your instinct, delegate, yeah. find time, get away from the business, create and understand and love your mentors because they are sometimes the people that don't give you the answer, but they ask the right questions of you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Don, I, I can't tell you how um, nice this was to catch up with you. And again, those people listening, remember, all we're trying to do is give you strategies, ideas, create uh, the, 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 the knowledge you need to know from small business owners, how come they've become successful. And I hope you got something out of it. So, Don, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. No, and thank you very, very much. It's always healthy for me to remind myself of what I should be doing, and it's these sort of the formats that allow us to do that. Uh, Tom, thank you very, very much. I, I, I don't think you know how much I appreciate it. Thank Great. you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Whenever you're ready to grow and protect your business while creating more balance in your life, here are three steps you can take. One, subscribe to this podcast. To request a free copy of Tom's newly published book, Unlocking Your Business DNA, email Tom at tperone at necgginc.com. And on the subject line, type DNA. Include your mailing address. And thirdly, take the one-minute scorecard and report to see how efficient you are in your business planning. Email tperone at necgginc.com and request scorecard. For additional information, click the show notes.